Hello, welcome to our second episode on Twilight. We had a bit of a recording malfunction, if you will, while we were working on our, our first chunk of Twilight, so we decided to reconvene and continue our discussion in this uh, special two-parter, if you will. Um, we've had a little bit more time to discuss the film, talk about some things, and we're going to kind of kick off where we left off, which uh, mostly was um, sort of the introduction of the Collins to the Twilight story. Uh, so, as always, I am your amiable co-host, Tim, and with me is... Catherine. And it was my fault. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's okay. Like I said, we're, we're, we're noobs at this. We're fortunate enough to have some, some you know, good recording equipment, but things can definitely go wrong. And I uh, have some friends who've run podcasts for a long time and say it's just kind of an inevitability. It's going to happen. Um, but uh, certainly glad to be back talking with you again uh, to discuss this uh, surprising film. Like I said, uh, revisiting Twilight um, years hence and sort of devoid of the hype has been a, a kind of fun experience that I wasn't really expecting to have. So, uh, so as I said, where we left off, we had we'd kind of been talking a little bit about the way that Hardwick does uh, what I would say an excellent job of capturing teenage insecurity, right? Yeah. All of the characters that surround Bella and including Bella herself, although ironically she's probably more self-confident as that that outcast figure um you know that sort of classic structure of the outcast who has secret knowledge or has learned something by being the outcast and therefore has confidence that draw other people to them we see a little bit of that here but i really like how hardwick takes us through all of these these new people that she's meeting uncomfortably meeting and and that while they exude confidence on the outside, there is this this under layer of I don't know what I'm doing, and I really like the way that she captures that very subtly. Yeah. Um, but uh, really, we, where we kind of broke off was the first cafeteria scene. Uh, Bella is sitting with her new group; they're all kind of discussing, and who walk in but the Cullens, right? <laughs> exactly. And and within that, we get one of our only slow-mo shots in this film um you know we've talked a little bit in the previous episode about how hardwick you know her style traditionally is what i would call naturalistic right it's it's all handheld it's shot very free she is um you know sort of letting things unfold in front of the camera you feel a bit like an observer like you've been brought into this world because the camera is very present it's very uh close it's very movable you know, all the things that you would expect from that, you know, particular directing approach. But here we get a, a full-blown slow-mo entrance of the Cullen family. Um, in, and it's, in it's very movie. wind in the hair, mm -hmm. high drama. I mean, it is an entrance. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, it's probably by this point in the film, which has been extremely straightforward in how information is presented this is really the first time where we get a you know omg look at them kind of thing so they're presented immediately as objects of desire and and something that you want to engage with and understand and then of course uh, edward comes in and uh, gets the same treatment but you know uh, bella gets her moment to sort of lock eyes and and you know have a, a brief connection with him and um, 
then we move very quickly into uh, Bella's only class and her only <laughs> teacher, which is her biology class. Biology all day long. Uh, she takes no other classes at Forks High School. She just goes to biology where she's she, lab partners. She does take lunch. With Edward. Lunch That's is right. lunch. the longest period of the day. That's right. Lunch <laughs> and biology. Yeah. Plenty of time to talk to friends, then go learn about frogs. Yeah. They're also the only ones who or take composting. field trips. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> It's very much the Spider-Man homecoming phenomenon where Peter only has the one class with Martin Starr. Yeah, it's perfect. Well, I, he, we do get Hannibal Burris, of course, as the gym teacher in that film. You can't forget about his lovely cameo. But um, So then Bella gets her slow-mo moment paralleled almost immediately after, right? It's, it's less than, than, I'd say, 30 seconds apart from Edward's slow-mo entrance to Bella's slow-mo entrance. And it is the wind in the hair, but the wind in the hair is being generated by the large fan standing next to the door as she walks in, which I have to believe is Hardwick sort of playing against this, right? Because like normally in these these teen films, the wind would be blowing through the hair and there would apropos of nothing, right? There would be no justification yeah. for it. It's just because they're beautiful. But here Bella is standing in front of a fan and her hair is being blown around in her face. And but that is, of beautiful. course... That's right. It's beautiful, but that is the main reason why the fan is important is because that's where Edward catches his first scent of Bella. If I catch uh, a whiff of this woman, I can't help myself. Yeah, yeah, gross. Um, <laughs> but, uh, so then we get to, you know this very awkward scene, their, their real first interaction together, where Edward seems physically repulsed by Bella, right? He's covering his mouth, he's recoiling. Uh, Bella's taken aback by this. She is, is obviously... She's being presented to us as this very unconfident young girl. I Again, I don't know if, if Stuart's performance is really supporting that she doesn't have confidence. She's she fairly forward, all things considered, especially even at this early stage of the game. But she seems really taken aback by it. And so this is the, the foundation of the relationship. And this is a famous scene in the book as well, played pretty straight here. They're, they're not really embellishing it a ton from what I... I'm aware of. But I think Pattinson does a really interesting job here, right? And I, 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 this seems like it would be somewhat difficult to pull off without seeming overly ridiculous, you know, because he has to both be interested, but at the same time, distancing himself. Right. And, and I think he does a pretty good job uh, with this moment. I don't know. What do you think? Um, he manages to... kind of play down the ridiculousness just enough so that it's not outwardly silly. I feel like, you know, the <laughs> catching a whiff of Bella for the first time, that could have been so much funnier. And Oh, for sure, yeah. And as best as possible, that moment was, the cheese was dialed back quite a bit. And, and I do think that's because Robert Pattinson kind of keeps it together on screen. Um... You know, he's famously got a really good sense of humor about having played Edward Cullen. And I think he brought that sense of humor to the role. Like, he's a good actor, but it, I I get a sense that he did have a little he had fun, and it was a fun character to play. But he's still, you know, the performance is, is incredibly competent. 
Yeah, uh, and people ha- didn't have a lot of confidence in Pattinson at this point. No. Uh, Hardwick clashed pretty continuously with the studio up until filming because um, I think I read a story that Pattinson had shown up for an early either a dress rehearsal or a table read uh, and it was kind of his first introduction to the studio heads. And he was in like a grubby t-shirt and he hadn't shaved and his hair was all messed up. And, and they were they were panicked, right? Like, oh my God, what have you done? And, and it was Hardwick basically saying like, no, like, just trust me, you get him cleaned up get him you know get the contact lenses like this guy's gonna he's gonna be the star of this movie and it kind of ushered in a a new a new well you know i I bring up gothic romantic literature but it it revitalized that type of um, love interest and protagonist in in film and in pop culture you know the pale brooding guy um that came back around again. Uh, I don't think that had been quite as popular since goths kind of died out a little bit. Yeah, the early 2000s were not kind to, you know, quiet, brooding loners. They never go away. I mean, as a, as a character oh, yeah. archetype, it's just too reliable to dispense with. But it certainly, you didn't see anybody leading, or you saw very few people leading movies with that. You, know, that you couldn't buy posters and t-shirts at Walmart. <laughs> no, no. There was, but now there's there was Edward Cullen everywhere. Everywhere. Um, did you know who Stephanie Meyer's original pick to play Edward Cullen was? I was very surprised. I don't think so. Henry Cavill. <laughs> Which, if okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm just, I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk about some stuff. I want you to go ahead and just Google Henry Cavill, age twenty. Because uh, this was very early in his career, just go ahead. I, we'll, we'll, I'll wait. Oh, I yeah. can see that. Mm-hmm. It's very chinny. Uh, yes, he very. has that that incredible jawline, but uh, with the longer hair, y- you kind of see it. Yeah, uh, it's Apparently. got a a bit of a, a Dracula two thousand Gerard Butler. Sure. Look to yeah. which is I, I, that is one of the the performances that I thought of when I saw Twilight for the <laughs> first time. I was like, "Ooh, he's a little Gerard Butlery." I mean, Dracula had died. I mean, vampire stories had died off. They had become jokes in yeah. the, the early two thousands. You know, I mean, um, the <laughs> Dracula two thousand. I mean, which I don't hate that movie. It's it's fine. Um, but, I have my issues with it. But <laughs> well, yeah, it's I not have a, a lot good of movie. Don't get me wrong, but you know, I, I find it—it's a watchable, it's a watchable enough movie. But vampire stuff—I mean, we really get Francis Ford Coppola taking the big swing at Bram Stoker's Dracula, <laughs> and and <Budapest. laughs> sorry, and, and mostly missing, you know. But I again, that's—it's a titanic achievement of attempting to tell a complicated story, uh, and I think it's a very beautiful film for what it is, but vampires had, had sort of fallen into this, well, frankly, where zombies were throughout most of the 90s. Absolutely. Right? This very, very B-movie territory. Vampires were not hot properties. Nobody was really super interested in vampire stuff. You know, it, it never goes away. It's always there, but it certainly was not at the top of most people's lists of films and, and properties to develop. 
and and Twilight again changed all of that. Apparently, the only reason Cavill didn't get the job was because he aged out. Um, he was when they were looking at him, he was twenty one. By the time the film went into production, he was almost twenty five, and he just looked too old. Uh, at least that was the the reasoning. So that's why Pattinson you couldn't was, pass Pattinson for a hundred and eight year old vampire. <laughs> No, Henry Cavill, at 25, you have aged out of the 108-year-old vampire or 100-year-old vampire role. Uh, but in any case, I, I think Pattinson here, you know, we're only 10 minutes into the movie at this point, but he is very quickly, I think, he establishes who his character is and what's going on um, decently, even though there is a mystery that's sort of tied to him. Uh, so Bella is is obviously upset that Edward is treating her this way, but she kind of moves on, which I think is kind of cool. You know, she doesn't in the book. She doesn't move on quickly. It, it's like a huge focus for several chapters of, of her just obsessing over why he's so mean to her. But uh, we in the film, we sort of quickly shift to uh, a diner scene. Right. And. Uh, I know we've talked a little bit already about Bella and her dad, but I, I just want to emphasize how much I really like the relationship that Hardwick builds between yeah. Billy Burke as uh, Charlie Swan and and Bella. I think it's it's it feels very natural. It feels very real. It feels very organic. Um, you can tell that these people have history together, but that the film is not necessarily working at exposing that history. They just want you to know that these people are comfortable with each other. Um, but there is still tension there too, which I think is kind of neat there. There again, you know, there's something about Hardwick and the way that she's able to sort of play these people off each other. They feel like legitimate relationships, not these, right. you know, sort of glossy constructed, you know, strained father daughter relationships. There's a real sort of core of affection. Like Bella does not hate her dad. Right, it's not that simple, right? Is it complicated? Of course, right? She cares about him, but at, and but at the same time, she is is frustrated that this has to happen. But maybe it's because Hardwick is interpreting it as you know she made this choice for herself, so she should kind of own it. Like nobody forced her to do this, but she's the one that made the decision to let her mom go, you know, run around and do whatever. So I really think I, I don't know. It, it just plays super super well for me. Um, I, I love her relationship with her father, and it, it's sad that the rest of the films um, sort of push him aside as a character. That relationship I was sort of hoping would be enriched, and, and I didn't read the rest of the book, so again, I don't know. Um, but he sort of disappears from, mm. um, from the story, and that's, that's a shame because this movie spends so much time building up that relationship and then he's just done. And even by the end of the film, you can kind of tell that they're putting him out of the way to introduce the next you know, film's complications and set those up. Yeah. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll get there uh, obviously, but you know, Bella and her father have a huge confrontation at the end, which she, you know, makes a choice to try and keep him safe from the vampire that is eventually going to track and hunt her. But it almost feels like by the end of the film, their relationship has been sort of irreparably wounded and maybe they won't be able to recover, even though they, they do have this kind of core of a, a decent relationship at the center of it. 
But so the diner scene takes place. We're introduced to uh, one of the film's created characters, Waylon, who's a friend of the family. You know, he references being Santa Claus when Bella was younger and if she remembered him. And, uh, you know, the dad kind of puts him off. But, you know, sets up a little bit of an emotional connection because that character obviously eventually he is, uh, you know, brought into the, the situation by the bad vampires. And, and so, like, the dad is, is emotionally invested in the hunt for those people. But it's a nice scene. It's quiet. It's simple. It's shot really well. It's very, effic- uh, very efficient. Um, it, it feels a bit like, you know, something you might shoot really fast in a television show. But it, it works here to just sort of reemphasize this is a... Yeah, there's just people having breakfast and stuff is happening. And it, it, it's very good. Like I said, Hardwick just does a great job with little scenes like this and, and tells us a lot. I really love that Bella picks up the ketchup and like t- tries to pour it for the entire scene <laughs> onto her <laughs> onto her burger. And it just never comes out ever. And then instead of, you know, like really digging into it, she just kind of shrugs and sets it back down like, oh, I guess I'm. I guess I'm just no not ketchup getting ketchup for me. Today. Yeah, it's it's very interesting, and I don't know if it's uh, there are a lot of again I don't like harping on this kind of stuff, but there are a lot of continuity errors in this movie. Very small things, a lot of just misplaced background items, um, you know, character s- switching positions and stuff. Which, um, you know, well, Hardwick I think is is a really underrated director. I, I agree. Think, you know, she's capable of capturing things in really, really interesting ways. Uh, you know, Lords of Dogtown 13 is shot very guerrilla style, you know, very cheaply. So, I mean, I think she's really working in her wheelhouse here. But you can tell in terms of a, of a decently budgeted Hollywood movie, there's some stuff getting overlooked. There's some things that are not getting, you know, sort of the the full attention that they deserve. And a lot of it probably comes down to time. Um, You know, we talk a lot about David Fincher on this show and David Fincher is a director that commands absolute dedication to the scene. Mm. Right. And if we need to shoot it 150 times, (laughs) we're going to shoot it. If I'm going to make Daniel Craig run down this hill and jump into this water that's freezing I'm going to make him do it a hundred times until I get it exactly the way I want. Um, but you don't get to do that and you don't get to have those choices in the editing room unless you have budget. That's and this true. movie does not have that. Not at all. And, and so I think in some cases they're shooting as much as they can, but they're definitely sort of forced to deal with things in the editing room. Cause you can't tell me that they didn't notice that, you know, in the, the hospital scene after Bella's accident, the cuff on her arm is off and on in between shots like you notice yeah. that stuff but they just they they don't have the time and the budget so again i don't know if that's a leftover of that the ketchup thing where you know she just was kind of half-heartedly maybe there was no ketchup in the bottle so she was just supposed to kind of pretend it came out and then didn't i don't know but it's just kind of a weird thing i remember sitting there watching be like is she ever gonna get that ketchup out because literally the whole scene, she's just she's just shaking it <laughs> Uh, we get a brief scene after that of, of Bella uh, calling her mom, touching base. You know, mom is at a batting cage and stepdad's like hitting because, again, minor league baseball player or whatever. And uh, the mom is, is the source in the script of a bunch of uh, unintentional humor because she's like, oh, are you staying safe? You know, like, 
you know, in reference to are you being, you know, sexually safe with the boys you're interested in? But we as the audience go like, well, he's a vampire. So no. <laughs> so we get, a, we get a lot of that from her, which I, I found refreshing. And it's it's nice. It's cool when, uh, you know, you can kind of drop in little bits of humor. Because, I mean, one thing that I, I think we can both agree on here is that up until this point, we're only 15 minutes in. This movie is as serious as a heart attack. Like, it yeah. is just a straight teen fish out of water drama and that is continuing so it's kind of nice to get just a little bit of humor but it's not far enough to be camp it doesn't do ridiculous. it's not a tonal shift when humor is injected and no that's usually where these kind of teen franchises fall apart is when they try to be a funny movie and a scary movie and a dramatic film it can't really be all of those things and i like that this twilight didn't choose that path it didn't try to be anything more than just a fairly serious adaptation of a fairly serious book despite having yeah. vampires yeah i mean i think you could have gone that direction and and you know in referencing the reviews many of them were disappointed that the film took itself so seriously but looking back at it now i do not know if this movie would have been as well received both by its fandom and by those who i'm sure stumbled into it without a ton of prior knowledge if it had not taken itself seriously if it was wink wink nudge nudge vampires the joke right like if that was the way this was treated i don't think we would have gotten a three and a half billion dollar franchise out of it right because the films i haven't seen them all but the films from what i i am aware of and i am aware of these films it gets fairly ridiculous towards the end right like in grand scheme of, of ludicrous film premises, it goes a little nuts. But this is played very straight and becomes, as a result, I think, a, a really good foundation for that franchise. Like, this smaller, quieter film, which really is just a teen drama with some some supernatural trappings, kind of clumsily included, I think it forms the relationships of the main characters so well that you can go to those ridiculous heights and still kind of sell it. Yeah. And I don't know if the franchise would have been able to, to do that if this was played less straight than what we're currently getting. Um, um, the, yeah, the films probably would have been bigger disasters. I, I don't like the other films, but it, they, they do try as best as they can to keep in the same look and feel of the first film. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that's essential because without it, they would, they would fall apart. Completely. Yeah, I, I think so. So um, after the conversation with mom, Bella goes back to school, seem seemingly fully intent to confront Edward about his behavior. Right. Why are you treating me this way? What's this reaction about? You know, we're lab partners. We need to work together. And he doesn't show up for a couple of days. So she's left li literally hanging without any sort of guidance as to what's going on. Uh, and then we get the first of several um, hard switches. Right. And, and these these if I have major issues with the filmmaking in this movie, it is these sequences. And those are the. We'll call them the bad vampire sequences, right? So we cut to some mine or something, some you know person working, being chased. 
by vampires. We get Dutch angles, we get low angles, we get um, music video, you know, hard white light blowouts, um, a lot of blur, a lot of focus pulls. And, and basically we watch a, a guy get chased down and, and presumably murdered, although, you know, even though this is a vampire film, there is not a tremendous amount of gore. And what gore is there is saved right at the end, uh, until right at the end. But so we watched this guy die, and when this scene started, you know, as I was doing my, my rewatch, it just comes completely out of nowhere, right? Like, we're, we're literally standing in a parking lot with Bella, it's like medium light, and then all of a sudden it's like, bam, corn music video right? like that's <laughs> that's sort of like what it felt like you know i was like is jonathan davis back there is there a guy with his bass on his knee um and uh so these films i i understand probably what's going on here we we have a limited budget we need to show that these characters have threats we need to show that these characters are dangerous we want this to feel tonally different for our our teen romance vampire movie but man, it just hits so hard and it is so off the wall compared to what we've gotten up until this point. Yeah. You know, we're up until the, you know, at 15 minutes into the movie, the, the only like weird filmmaking technique that we've gotten, apart from the deer chase at the opening, which has a little bit of that stuff in it, you know, some blurring, some, uh, you know, shaky cam stuff. Uh, you know, the, the most interesting camera move we've gotten is, is a slow-mo shot of people walking into a cafeteria. And now all of a sudden it's like, I put my camera on the floor and I tilted it to the left and then I shine a light and this dude's face, you know, like that kind of stuff. It, 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 it for me, it doesn't work well. Um, and I think the, it could have been done a lot more straightforwardly. A lot of the antagonist scenes don't work well for me. Um, the antagonists in the film in general don't work for me because I, <clears throat> I often feel like that's, not at all what the focus of the film was and the most successful elements of the film had nothing to do with this sort of almost sidelined B movie B plot about bad vampires. Right. So when that moment happened, I was sort of taken out of, of the film a little bit. Like, well, I sort of liked what was happening and right. now I'm now what's happening. <laughs> Right. And it's a short scene. It's like 30 seconds. But yeah. I, I think part of it is that in the book, and again, I have I, I don't have an intense relationship with the book, but part of the idea of these murders and attacks happening is, you know, you're supposed to suspect that the Cullens are vampires. And, and Meyer was trying, at least to some extent, to make the audience potentially think that they're behind these attacks. Right, that that perhaps Edward himself is this violent killer, and so and we never buy that. Never. I mean, there. I mean, again, we're only fifteen minutes into the movie, but there is nothing. You're not going to show violent killers slow mo walking into a cafeteria and having and having everybody in the room go, ah, right. Like I don't, I don't see that being how you you produce threat from those characters at you, least not you, to me you get an idea that edward is is dangerous somehow but not that dangerous not, not to that, that degree right. um you 
So it was a little difficult to buy that subplot. I guess that's maybe why the antagonists don't really don't really make a lot of sense in the plot to me. It just feels very very much an afterthought. Um It feels like I mean and again, I'm I'm not a professional book editor, but it feels to me like an editor saying like we need a climax to this story, right? We they meet, they fall in love, but what's the threat? Right? What's the problem? And and so this subplot about, you know, a traveling group of vampires comes in. And again, I, I doubt that's how it went down, but it, this makes it feel like that. It feels yeah. like that much of an afterthought that the these are not stories running parallel to each other. These are just flashes to another thing that I need you to be aware of so that when these guys are introduced in literally the last 20 minutes of the movie, now you know they're bad, right? Um, but I, again, I think uh, in... In other circumstances, if they'd had a bit more time to develop them, because really we get that scene of the murder in the mine, and we get one more where the family friend is murdered, and, and that's yeah, it. That's it. Um, you know, it's not like this is a, you know, dozens of attacks. There's, it's insinuated that there have been more, but we don't see those, and they aren't really discussed. It's very background to the the drama of the relationship that we've been given. You know, right. something and it, and it is really happening, but be. it's it's not. It doesn't have anything to do with us. Right. Um, and, and the movie doesn't do a good job of connecting the, the dots between those. Um, so, brief scene with uh, Bella and her dad. You know, he kind of tells her about the attacks so that she's aware. And, and again, this is all in, in service of her as she starts to discover what Edward is here in, you know, a few minutes that, oh, well, maybe he's the one doing this. Which, again, never a consideration. Like, there was never a, a moment in the film where I was like, oh yes, Edward is the man murdering people. <laughs> but whatever, right? So finally we get an introduction scene, uh, really the first chance in the film that Pattinson gets to act and speak, right? Mm -hmm. Everything is pretty much done silently before. Uh, but he finally, he shows up again, he finally decides to have a conversation with Bella. Again, they're in biology class because it's the only class that they have other than lunch. And they they finally, you know, have their moment together and here is where all of the awkward Kristen Stewart uh, uh, you know like this this thing that she does this is the scene that pretty much all of those get get memed out from yeah uh, to my knowledge there are lots of others but these, this is the most egregious because she's she's leaning very hard into that I I I guess we can take a moment and talk a bit about Kristen Stewart and Robert Pattinson's acting. We kind of did already, but um, Kristen Stewart was was pretty maligned for her performance unfairly in this film. Yeah, she's she took a, a bunch of shots to the chin with this movie, um, and, and I, I agree. I watching it again. You know, I've seen the bad lip readings. I, I love them as yeah, much as anybody else. They're funny. And there's certainly a lot there, but this one of the reviews uh, said that they could feel Kristen Stewart working, right? That they could feel her working hard where she should have felt a lot more natural. But I think there's a, a really specific choice being made here with Kristen Stewart's decisions. And 
this is not the last time that we're going to talk about uh, the Coen brothers in this because later on we're going to have to talk about the music direction from Carter Burwell. But one thing that I think is happening here after watching this and, and sort of paying attention to her performance, because we've all seen Kristen Stewart in the, the years hence, right? And Kristen Stewart is not a bad actress. If anything, I would say she's one of the most capable actresses of her generation. Um, I just watched Underwater not too long ago, uh, which is a, a, a very not-so-subtle alien ripoff. Basically, it's, it's alien underwater. It's like, a, you know, uh, if anybody remembers, like, Leviathan or uh, Deep Star Six yep. in the 1980s, it's very much one of those with very slick production value, but Kristen Stewart is the, the central character in that, and she pretty much owns that movie. Like, she carries it on her back for nearly an hour and a half, about 110 minutes, I guess. Um, and she's fantastic, like absolutely fantastic in it. There's not a lot going on in the movie. It's pretty straightforward, but she is is electric to watch in it. And and so I, I just, in watching this now, and maybe it's it's me reaching back with what I know now about her as an actress, trying to, to justify my opinions, but it really feels to me here that because Bella in the book is described very specifically as this awkward, uncomfortable, you know, real teenager, I think they've chosen to play Bella in that way. That she is specifically stumbling over her words, she has problems communicating, her facial expressions are not always poised and beautiful. She feels like a person who is being very vulnerable on screen, not unlike the work of the Coen brothers where they will have characters designed like the big Lebowski to truly portray what a human being looks like when you film them yeah. doing things, which for most of us is uncomfortable, incapable of speaking clearly and, and generally struggling to, to string thoughts together in meaningful ways. Right. Yeah. It's getting punched in the face and be like, what the hell, man? Right? There's there's no comeback. There's no witty one-liners. It's We don't do that. That's not how most people behave. That's how we behave in movies. And I think that Hardwick and, and Stewart here have made a very specific decision to tone back that perfection. It pokes out a little bit, and, and here's my, my bit of evidence for why I think this is true. When Bella and Edward are alone most of that strips away. Yeah. She's much more sure of herself. And you know, there are moments where she says things to Edward throughout the film that are... She's not stumbling. She's not frustrated. It's It seems like they capture social pressures and anxieties really well. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, again, it feels very very thoughtful, right? It feels like directed by someone who has at least an inkling of an understanding of what a teenager's experience is actually like, which again, that's yeah, why Hardwick hard got does. this job. Yeah. That's why she got this job. So um, it feels like a choice. It just, it's too consistent for it just to be Kirsten Stewart being bad Yeah, for me. Like it just doesn't feel genuine. Now in the later films, as Bella's continued to grow as a character, it becomes harder to justify, I think. But in this film, it, it makes 100% sense that she would be this, especially in the face of a guy that she is attracted to, is very aloof, that, that Heathcliff 
you know, Byronic hero as, as you know, we've, we've talked about in our conversations, um, the, the lack of comfort and clarity makes sense. And I think that they're leaning into it maybe a little too much. I'll grant you that, you know, that it, it slows the flow of the film because Bella can't get her words out, I guess. But at the same time, I think it, it's very justified by what they're trying to do. And it ties into that realistic portrayal of, of teenage existence, or at least a close enough too realistic for their undoubtedly teenage audience to feel connection and to feel understood and seen. I agree. I, actually, I I solidly agree with that. So as we move through the, the introduction sequence, Edward finally warms a bit. <laughs> LOL. Um, <laughs> and, and, and they get a moment of connection, although brief. They, uh, they work through a project together and, and uh, you know, finally get a chance to, to bond a bit. But then we get, uh, I'm going to be super honest, probably my favorite overall just scene slash sequence in the film. Uh, Bella is, and it's, it's probably the, you know, we're, we're 20 minutes into the movie at this point. At 20 minutes, you need to have had all of your major players set up. You need to know pretty much all of your characters. You need to understand the basic setup. And then this is the, the inciting event that kicks off the, the next major se- you know, set in the film. So at 20 minutes, Bella's standing in the parking lot. Uh, it's a rainy day because Pacific Northwest. <laughs> it's always rainy. And uh, another student that Bella knows uh, is in his, his big Chevy Astro van, which is great. I uh, absolutely love that. Those vans are trash. And he uh, loses control and nearly slams into her next to her truck. And uh, Bella, the, the film is very careful to show us the arrangement of characters. Edward's over by his car, Bella's by her truck, listening to music, uh, which I love that this is the pre-iPhone era as well. Yeah. It's, it's so hilarious now to watch this awkward moment in technological history where we had phones that would play music. Uh, you know, she's got a fairly nice uh, slash upscale Nokia phone um, that I remember from this time frame. I was using uh, a Samsung and I had a Sony Xperia phone at this point that was very cool put a put an sd card in it save your music to it It it's terrible but it's pre-iphone right and so she's sitting there she's listening to music she's got her headphones in um and the car you know nearly slams into her and edward appears and stops the car we get my favorite needle drop in the film in this sequence uh, a collective soul needle drop which you know for those who don't know who Collective Soul is, their most famous song is uh, called Shine, uh, and it has uh, the thing that Collective Soul is most known for was their guitar work. Their guitar player, uh, they have several, but their their main guitar player is extremely melodic. He's, he's really good. And they really lean into the, uh, basically the, the event takes place and the song begins to sort of come up in the background. It's this nice sort of melodic arpeggio uh, on, on guitar. And then, you know, as people crowd around, the song actually comes in full. It's a really great moment for the soundtrack. And, and I just remember watching it and and going like, wow, that was, that was actually super good because it's completely disorienting as to what happened. Yeah. We don't get any special effects shot of Edward sprinting over in fast motion, right? It's just, he's not there and he's there. And he saves her life. And it's, it's, it's just super effective. It works great. It's exactly how, how Bella perceives that moment. You know, it, it happens. She doesn't even register what's about to happen. 
Um, and really, the audience doesn't even even have time to register what's going to happen. It's almost after he rescues her that it's like, oh, that was cool. <laughs> yeah, I really like when a, a director has a good handle on how to film a shocking scene. Right, you know, because a well-executed thing like a car crash in a film can be completely, completely unsettling, right? Yeah. Just disorienting and strange. And, you know, we see it a bunch now. I, I, I'm trying to remember the first time it might have been Six Feet Under, the way that the dad dies in the first episode of Six Feet Under, because he's driving the hearse and we're in the cab with him as he's pulling, you know, through an intersection, then he gets hit by a bus. And it's yeah. the, you know, what now has become a kind of semi-classic shot of being in the car with the actor. And then, you know, you you see what they don't see as the bus comes and hits. And then, the, you know, the event takes place. And it's, it's a very common shot now. I think that might have been the first time I remember seeing a shot like that executed. I'm sure there was one before that. but But this has that same feel to it where... It's just you're as taken aback as the characters are, right? The emotional effect on the audience is the same as the emotional effect on the characters based on the way that it's shot and put together. And it's just super effective. At least it was for me. Uh, so Edward saves her and they have this moment of, of, you know, they kind of stare deeply into each other's eyes. It's wordless. Edward says nothing. He just kind of hops away and disappears. And Bella is left to deal with this, you know, earth shattering information, not only. And uh, the other thing I like about the scene is that not only is she just realized that he physically stopped a car from hitting her and crushed in its door with his hand. But I think the real revelation is he does like me. Yeah. And I kind of like that those two things happen at the same time, because you don't really know which one of those things strikes Bella harder. And Again, it feels like a really strong choice for because if you are that that young girl sitting in the audience, what would be the thing that you would take away from it, right? That he's a, a superhero or that he actually does care about me. And at the end of the day, I think the caring about me thing would probably be the more the more powerful thing driving me forward. Yeah. Um, and there's so. a lot of suggestion that that character Bella goes out of her way not to be seen and mm, yeah. that is the moment in which he very purposely sees her and recognizes her and she she responds to it um, and of course it has that wonderful you know, romantic trope of we're in danger and it's hot <laughs> yeah yeah we can't get away from that like most of the Oh, what's the line from Speed? Um, relationships forged in uh, intense experiences never last, or something like that. <laughs> it's the thing that uh, I think Sandra it was Bullock says. Couldn't slow down. <laughs> but you know, so it's a it's a really effective scene. I, I like it. I like the musical choice. I like the way that it was shot. I really like the 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 sort of overall effect. But this is really where. Uh, Bella's obsession with Edward begins, right? It's this moment. Because now she has a mystery to solve. How did he do this? And and what was his reasoning for doing it? So we get a, another really good scene between her and her dad. Uh, she's at the hospital. She's fine, shockingly. But uh, the dad is 
is uh, very perturbed at the young man that almost hit his daughter. Uh, we get a little bit more humor here. Again, very played very straight, but basically the, the kid keeps trying to apologize to the dad, and he eventually just kind of pulls the curtain in front of his face and <laughs> doesn't want to hear it anymore, which again is nice. And he's, again, he is wonderful. He is, he's such a good movie dad. He's a good movie dad, exactly. Like, that's really the best term. Like, you know, we've been talking about sort of naturalistic performances and really trying to get at what a teenager thinks and feels. This is more of a movie construction of a father character, but it has enough of the, the essential base elements that I think you still buy it very, very well. And it feels very real, right? It doesn't, yeah. you know, he's not brandishing his shotgun uh, yet. Yeah. <laughs> but we get there. Um but really, the tag of that scene is Bella having another, you know, sort of small confrontation, really, with Edward, um, where she sort of starts to demand answers, right? Because the Cullens are there. The We're introduced to Carlisle Cullen, uh, Edward's <laughs> quote-unquote father. Even and though they look like they're only a few years apart. Age, yeah. <laughs> um, but in essence, uh, Bella kind of we see her come out of her shell a bit and she kind of says like, you know, what happened? What was that? And he says, you just need to leave it alone. And Bella kind of refuses to back down. So we start to see a bit of, of her coming out of her shell at that point, especially where Edward is concerned. Um, then we kind of get several um, school scenes, you know, we're kind of back. It's, it's a little bit business as usual. Everything's trying to calm back down. Bella is approached by one of her friends uh, in an effort to get her to go to prom with him. She completely, ignores him which i guess we can talk about a little bit i at this point it's it's pretty much established that bella and edward you know this is the central you know romantic component of the film but she pretty handily dismisses is it michael i think is his name uh i don't remember that kid's name <laughs> this is how unimportant <laughs> exactly. he was exactly <laughs> unimportant uh, but she pretty much just sort of bats him away and then encourages him to ask out Anna Kendrick's character, which ends up working out. But it does it does feel a bit dismissive, right, that, that Bella kind of just crushes this dude, uh, not unlike she was initially kind of crushed by Edward. And I've always wondered about that. Um, you know, I, if I remember correctly, that's from the book. That is a, a thing, you mm -hmm. know. Um, because even though Bella is awkward and shy and, and nobody see, you know, nobody sees me, nobody understands me, she does get propositioned quite a bit <laughs> in the, the book as well. So we get that. And, and it, I think it really is as a, a moment, it's just there to sort of reinforce that Bella is now completely focused on understanding Edward. Yeah. I mean, I, I tend to overlook stuff like that because, you know, Realistically, she's under no obligation to return his affection. And that kid, I recall the movie being really um, almost insistent that she didn't like him. That's just not her type. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. we're sort of led to, to wonder, at least until the Cullens show up, what her type is. Because it's like, well, you, you don't want to go out with this nice kid. What, what do you want? And then mm -hmm. once we have Edward introduced, it's like, oh, that's your time. Yeah. And I think wow. you're right. I, I think it is 
you know, I feel like Hardwick, you know, the, the romance in this, this story is very classical, right? As, yeah. as we've already kind of broached. You know, these are, are very, very old romance story tropes being trotted out for the modern uh, you know, reader slash viewer. But I think Hardwick, in some ways, I think she personally disagrees with some of that. And, and I think the phrase, she doesn't owe this kid anything, is, is important. And perhaps yeah. that's what Hardwick is doing. Is she's saying a, a young woman doesn't owe a guy anything. Just because yeah. you choose to pay attention to me doesn't mean that I have to give you anything in return. And I think that that's that maybe be a, a bit of that attitude here because, you know, Bella is about to you know counsel one of her friends to be a modern woman and to just go ask out a guy. Don't wait to be asked out. And so there is a bit of that edge to her that's being thrown in here. And you know, it is not her responsibility to manage someone else's feelings, which again does come into play here in a little bit with Edward as well. Mm-hmm. So she disses dude. Uh, but then we get her next kind of big scene with Edward at a field trip, again, for biology class, but yep. only class. They go to a greenhouse. They look at compost. It's very exciting. It seems like a typical high school field trip, if we're being honest. Yeah. Um, and Edward sort of sidles up to Bella and, and starts you know, having conversation. Uh, we get another little brief glimpse of Bella being awkward, right? She kind of trips over her own two feet. It's a little strange. It's not justified at all. You know, typically in editing, you would want to do, you know, like a second unit shot of, you know, a girl in Converse tripping over a hose or something. We don't get that. It's just shot wide, which I thought was a bit of a strange choice because we just basically see Kristen Stewart trip over her own two feet. Uh, which again, we've got to keep that idea that Bella is awkward and clumsy in the movie, but it just, it felt a little throwaway and it it just ends up feeling almost intentional on Bella's part. Like she tripped on purpose. Uh, And I know that that's not what they were going for, but it's, it's just a a weird choice in terms of, um, you know, sort of editing and presentation for me. Um, but so Pattinson uh, begins talking. When she falls, he kind of is like, can't you stay on your feet or whatever? Like, it's a... a <laughs> you dumbass! <laughs> yeah, he's like, why are you so stupid? You know, be better. Be better at life. Um, which doesn't make it out of sense. Uh, but it does kind of play at this, you know, Edward is surprisingly aggressive towards Bella. He seems interested, but at the same time, there is this edge to him that he doesn't seem to be able to put down. And then he, he basically ditches her and says that he can't, she can't ride on his bus, <laughs> which is like, I don't know if that would ever be a student's choice, but okay. Uh, and so it, it's another sort of awkward moment, but it plays okay for me. Like this scene, we get another little bit of humor. One of the kids is about to drink compost water or something. You know, there's, there is a lot of jackassery that feels very real in this, right? Cause as someone who has, spent a lot of time with teenagers in a high school setting. I can assure you that 90% of what they're attempting to do at all times is jackassery, right? Uh, I'm going to flick this dude's ear. I'm going to throw this thing at a guy. I'm going to trip this dude as he's walking. And there's a bunch of that just in this movie of kids being real kids, right? Not, yeah. not CW brooding pretty kids, which I find really ironic that somebody, you know, said this was Anne Rice slumming for the WB 
but that's one of the things I like about this is that the teenagers aren't really those glossy CW kids, right? Um, it certainly could have been, but it doesn't feel that way. You know, they their actions feel very real, and the guys in particular are just jackasses, yeah, right? They're, they're constantly awful. chasing girls with stuff. They're you know, it, it feels like if if Hardwick could have shot a scene of a boy attempting to snap a girl's bra strap in the hallway she would have right it just it feels like she has that much disdain for the quality of high school boys and that of course ends up reinforcing why bella would be interested in someone obviously more mature like edward uh we move from there into uh a little bit of a, a reminder that you know bella is missing her mom and that the relationship with her dad was strained right we kind of have to have that uh but the dad seems you know again burke is great but the dad seems genuinely happy that bella's mom has found at least some measure of happiness with her new you get the feeling that their relationship has long been over Mm. um and that her parents have never really been together i guess or at least they've they've been separate maybe longer than they were together. Um, yeah, nobody's getting parent trapped in this yeah. movie. Thank God. Yeah, it would have been an unnecessary complication. And I think, again, it speaks to the maturity of the the human drama, just the relationship drama in this film, that they don't try to seed that. You know, Bella's not here with her dad being like, why didn't you love my mom? You know, there's none of that. That's all been handled. That's all in the past, right? We've we've moved on, and I love that that that's just sort of a background element. I think it, it's again, it just adds to the the drama and the weight of the film. I agree. Um, all right, so then the next major sequence, uh, Bella gets invited to go out to the Sound and do some surfing, which feels incredibly awkward to me. I don't know who would want to go surfing in March in the Pacific Northwest, but they seem adequately prepared, so I don't know. You do you. It's... <laughs> right. You, you wear your wetsuit, boy. Um, she invites Edward. Uh, Edward refuses, and, and that tailors into a, a scene between her and Jacob uh, at the beach. Uh, again, the, the kids are being jackasses. You know, boys are chasing girls with seaweed. Uh, typical stuff. Bella is mostly sitting in the van doing it. looks like she's doing homework. But then uh, Jacob and some of his... Uh, buddies show up and he pulls her away. She sort of mentions, or one of the other students mentions that Bella had invited one of the Cullens and Jacob says, well, they don't, they don't come out here. Or one of the other guys says that. And so the, the mystery of who or what is Edward Cullen gets further reinforced here as Jacob spins a, a yarn told by his great grandfather about, you know, the first time the Cullen family came to the region and we get a couple of flashback sequences here. It's shot to look, you know, sort of yellowed and old. And it is obviously the same characters that we've met, but dressed in, you know, early 1900s garb. They're cosplaying. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're cosplaying 1900s folk uh, hunting deer in the forest. So a little bit of a tie back to that opening. So maybe there's still some threat. Again, the film does not make the, the Cullens seem dangerous ever. No. You know, despite any of this stuff. But Bella is once again sort of pulled in 
a, a new direction of research, right? And she now has a quest to understand these legends that Jacob has shared with her. And that kind of drives her next set of actions. Um, but that gets hard stop interrupted again for our second bad vampire sequence where the family friend Waylon is murdered in his fishing boat. Um, we get, is this the first fast motion effect that we see on screen? I think it is. I believe it is. It's um, the one that's, it sticks out just in my the, head. Yeah, just the, the hyper sped up stuff that, you know, kind of looks like they just smeared frames or layered several takes over each other at, at uh, high speed to sort of create this this fast motion effect. Um, and it's not terrible. It, it definitely doesn't feel... It doesn't feel real. I'd, I'd almost rather have them just do the standard sort of camera pan trick where you've got a character who's over here and then they're in another location and we just whip pan and hide the cut and just have them go from, from place to place rather than attempting to show them in motion from point to point and use this kind of somewhat cheesy effect. Yeah. Um, but it's really the first time we see the bad vampires uh, speak. They have a brief conversation. So we get Laurent, uh, who's kind of the leader, and then Victoria and James. And they talk with him a little bit. We get a little joke about playing with your food. And, uh, you know, presumably Waylon is killed. Then we get another uh, early, you know, usage of Google on screen, which is great. Um, as uh, Bella researches these these various legends and uh, the cold ones yes. that, that she discovers uh, and she is eventually led to a small uh, bookstore independent bookstore in a town close by and they have a book that may have some answers about these cold ones and here's where you know a lot of people maligned this film because of stephanie meyer's sort of willful disregard for traditional vampire lore right i, I think you can agree that that was a, a big sticking point for a lot of people at the time. For for the average person, it was I hate teenage girls. For the, the pop culture, movie viewer, the, yeah. the seasoned moviegoer, it was um, those are not real vampires. Right, and here you know we we can see that they are attempting to blend a lot of different mythological stories about the immortals right people who live forever and have some kind of potion um so in a way they are kind of distancing themselves from what we would consider the sort of traditional european vampire model um but you know i i, I understand the point the point is valid you know call them you know wampires or something if you if you're going to change them so much but these are relatively new structures in literature, right? The the vampire, as we as most people understand it, and as this film is pr is playing upon, is not that old, right? So to say that this is the only way a vampire can be is is a it's kind of a silly approach, right? I understand, I get it, but I don't think it's a really valid reason to criticize the film, um, especially because it's it's merely adapting what the book did with the vampires, right? Um, I would think it would be a, a more, it would be an interesting choice to see them take a more traditional approach maybe, but that's not really the point. Yeah. And it's, it's her prerogative to, to be as creative and as, as far-fetched as she wants. 
Because it's not like there's a national coalition of vampires that's going to raise up and object to their their depiction true. in this novel because vampires are, are not real. <laughs> that is true. That's an important thing to remember. Um, I, I think, again, this might just be a perspective thing because now the vampires have kind of reemerged into pop culture. We have, you know, very successful properties like what we do in The Shadows that play with and push against vampire lore. You know, one of my favorite characters of the What We Do in the Shadows TV show is an emotional vampire. <laughs> right? Have you seen that show? I don't no. know if we've talked about it. Uh, it's very good. He's an emotional vampire. He's this huge nerd. He wears, like, V-neck sweaters and ties, and he has these big glasses. And he is not a vampire who drinks blood. He feeds off the emotional discomfort of others. So his his feeding is he works at a desk job and he'll go over to somebody else's cubicle and just kind of stand there and stare at them. And then he feeds off of their discomfort and he just gets into awkward conversations. He'll invade people's space. He'll move their stuff around. Uh, there's a really good <laughs> clip you can probably find where it's just him in his room and he's surrounded by like 30 different laptops and he's just doing nothing but annoying people on social media, you know, just being like this huge <laughs> troll uh, you know, he's like, this is this woman has a PhD in astrology or astronomy. Uh, watch this. And he's just like, that's not how the sun works. Read a book. <laughs> and then like her rage at, at his his social media post is what feeds him. And he just kind of like sits there and vibrates as he absorbs the energy. And, you know, like that's played for last. People love it, but it is not it does not fit within that traditional vampire mold. Although what we do in the shadows, I will say does have plenty of characters who definitely do fit into that mold. But again, I think this may have just been since it was the kind of reemergence of vampires into legitimate large scale pop culture media. It may have just gotten the brunt of that. It was hate. the icebreaker. Yeah. I mean, everything has to be an icebreaker. Interview with the vampire was an icebreaker. Yeah, for sure. Very much so. And I mean, but that was what, 1991? Something like that. That came out, it's like early 90s, maybe 90, 90, between 91 and 93. So, I mean, that's that's 15 years without, you know, super significant. We, there were, you know, we had other Anne Rice adaptations, Queen of yeah. the Damned. So. <laughs> um, uh, I'll tell you, I will say one underrated vampire performance that I like more and more the more I watch it is the uh, Jonathan. Uh, Harker's wife in uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. That's a really good vampire performance. She does a really good job with it. And and it's... Nobody remembers that movie, for one. No, no. <laughs> uh, even though it should be remembered. Uh, there are things about it that are very dumb, but the design of the Nautilus alone in that movie of, of uh, Nemo's ship is gorgeous. That, that, that thing is amazing. It's beautiful. Uh, so we're probably going to talk about uh, well, LXG at some point. <laughs> Man, they didn't know how to market that thing. No. Uh, it makes you understand why Alan Moore wants nothing to do with any of the properties that get adapted to film. But I, I like I liked uh, Extraordinary Gentleman quite a bit. But in any case. So Bella begins her research, and then uh, there's a nice day. The Cullens don't show up at school, uh, which we find out that is uh, whenever it's sunny, they don't come to school. They go hiking or disappear for a few days uh, together 
uh, which again, set up and payoff. We find out why that's the case a little bit later. But the uh, Bella's friends are going to go look at prom dresses. So they are headed to this town that has the bookstore. So she sort of tags along. Uh, they're looking at prom dresses. One thing we probably should talk about, because this is where it becomes really important in the story, is uh, the male gaze in this movie. So what is your take on... I mean, this is a directed by Catherine Hardwick, so it's directed by a woman. Um, how do you think this film does in a movie where quite literally there is a leering vampire man who is obsessed with this girl, how do you think it handles it? Surprisingly well, because Bella could have been juiced up on screen to be sexy. She could have been um, dressed more provocatively. She could have done all of the you know well i mean let's just be honest when we think of of you know male gaze and and pop culture and film a lot of us see megan fox standing over uh bumblebee and that is the epitome of male gaze and mm-hmm. that is not done with bella at all in fact harvick goes out of her way to reverse that and do a lot of um, almost jokes on it with the the long, lingering camera shots on Edward and just all of his his pale sexitude thing that he has going on. It almost seems like that was conscious and a little bit tongue in cheek that we don't have that being done to you know even Anna Kendrick's character. The most we ever see is she's wearing a, like a tank top when they're hanging out outside in the sun, mm-hmm. which and, uh, is not the, provocative. The prom dress scene, she, in the prom dress scene, she gets a moment where the, there's like a low-cut prom dress she's trying on. She's like, oh, these make my boobs look good. But, you know, but that's, it's, that's, not, that's not male gaze. That's, that's no. women being themselves. And no. I, I feel like the, the film could have gloried in some of the, the female characters. And, you know, the, the Cullen women are all played by absolutely knock out beautiful women, but they are not sexualized on screen. And that would have been so easy to do because they are vampires. Yeah, um, I mean, it's kind of expected. Yeah. And, vampire characters. and that's one thing that sticks with me about the film is there was not an overabundance of vampire sexiness. And that's impressive to me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's very restrained. I mean, Again, serious like a heart attack. Like this film is is not playing to camp, and it's not really always playing to type either. If it is playing to a type, it is playing to the teenage, you know, romance slash drama. Like that is the type that is most resoundly attempting to fit into. Uh, and I think it's really only when we get that becomes when that becomes overshadowed by the supernatural elements, or where this film generally finds its stumbling points. Um, which is what we're getting to. So Bella's with her friends. They split up so she can go to the bookstore. She does. She finds the book she's wanting. As she's leaving, she is approached by uh, a group of men that saw her in the window while her friends were shopping. And uh, it is pretty apparent, at least the way that it is shot, with some low Dutch angles again to make us feel uncomfortable, that Bella is about to be assaulted uh, by these men. They're implied. It's implied that they're drunk. They're kind of carrying beer cans with them. 
um, but but she is about to be attacked, right? So um, Edward appears, uh, stunt driver Edward, Edward slash driver, <laughs> right? It's, it's uh, Ryan Gosling in the seat, but Edward gets out, right? I, I don't know. Um, but he appears in a Volvo. <laughs> don't well, see too many stunt to driving Volvos, but it's it's cool. He shows up, he rescues Bella and uh, I saves don't her. Like that. Yeah, go in go into that a bit. We've we've talked about that um, already a tad. I just in general don't like the the white knight in in anything. Um up until this point we haven't seen a lot of damsel in distress moments with Bella and it feels a little disingenuous um, to put her in that position because I'm not saying it wouldn't happen that would absolutely happen um, because it happens all the time but the setup of of Edward swooping in and saving the day is is unrealistic Um, so I I had a problem with that part of the film. It's so short, though. Um, really, the only part that's still kind of problematic, I know we did talk about this, was what he says to her in the car after she is rescued. That is... Yeah. Yeah. Um, one thing I, I will say I do like about it is that Bella is not immediately thankful. Yeah. She's more concerned about, like, why are you following me? What makes you think you can do this? You say you don't like me, but yet at the same time, you are watching you are, me. <laughs> right. Like this is this is bad and creepy and weird. So I like that she kind of calls him on it. Um I, I think we're still supposed, however, to interpret Edward's behavior as as the the white knight, as the good yeah. man, saving her, even though Bella is this a little bit of voice of reason and pushing back against him. She's not immediately worshipful, like, oh, thank you. I don't know what I would have done, right? There's none of yeah. that, which is, is I'm, I'm thankful. I think that would have been a, a real betrayal of, of Bella's character at this point if that had been her reaction. It feels like the film handled that moment, because I, I, that is from the book, as far as I remember. Um, it handled that moment as gracefully as you could handle that plot point without making Edward look completely ridiculous. Yeah, I think so. Uh, it feels like a screenwriter trying to throw these characters together, and, and maybe they could have spun some more time out of it, but they really didn't need to. But uh, the moment in the car that we, you were referring to earlier is um, Edward places Bella into a position of responsibility for his emotional state. He says, take me you know, make me think of something else so I don't go back and kill those guys, which I guess is supposed to feel threatening and powerful, right? Like, ah, oh, stop me from murdering, me. you know? But I, I just really don't like the tenor of that scene. Um, because one, you know, Edward is is displacing his emotion into Bella and saying, you're now responsible for keeping me in check, which is ridiculous and is counter to the central really the only downside for Edward in this film is the fact that when he's around Bella, as we find out soon enough, that he struggles to control himself to not, you know, ravage her. So it it feels, it just feels like that scene needed a bit more work. 
uh, and it, I'm glad it, it ends quickly. They very quickly move into the restaurant scene. All of that is forgotten. Nobody and I talks about it a anymore. lot of those problematic scenes that I believe came from a, they, they're in the film because of the necessity the plot requires it. Um, I feel like a lot of those scenes are really short and it must be because they had to be there, but they weren't necessarily wanted. Mm. Um, yeah, it feels like a concession, right? You know, because yeah. this movie does not follow traditional blockbuster tropes, right? We have not had a, an action sequence for a bit. You know, we we got the one with the vampires, but that because this is is a film that cannot have a tremendous amount of vampire violence that really ends before anything happens we get a little right. bit of a special effects show basically so we needed a, a little action beat i guess but it, it really is dispensed with and and departs very quickly and then we move into a, a dinner right she meets up with her friends edward is there edward invites her to dinner because she hasn't eaten anything we find out that edward's on a special diet lol um, <laughs> And, and, you know, again, we get a little bit of Bella finally having some of those confident interactions with Edward saying, like, you need to tell me what's going on. This is not okay. Stop being You don't get to weird. do this. <laughs> you know, not to the point that she's not going to ride home in his car for an hour and a half or whatever it is, but enough that she's like, if you're going to keep doing this stuff, we need to have like a serious conversation about what this is. Uh, so they return to town, and that, of course, is... Uh, we get a couple of scenes very quickly. Again, Carlisle is... Um, the body has been discovered. They kind of come across the scene. Bella suspects that her dad is there. And we get another scene from Carlisle sort of explaining, you know, oh, there's been another animal attack, some knowing glances between him and Edward because they obviously know what's going on and who's actually committing these acts. Uh, again, at this point, if if the film is intending to make me feel tense about whether or not the Cullens are responsible, it has failed miserably. So I, I hope that wasn't intentional. I mean, um, and I'm honestly not sure. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I I know in the book that that's a legitimate thing that she tries to build again, but I don't think it ever works. Um, but another nice scene between Belle and her dad. Uh, he gives her pepper spray, which is <laughs> hilarious. Um, it becomes this symbolic thing to keep the pepper spray close, especially when the Cullens are around. And then finally we get the, the reveal. Uh, Bella gets her book home. She understands the cold ones. She sees all of the connections between the behavior she's observed in Edward and what she's reading in the book. And that leads us to, you know, now really at the, the midpoint of the film, right? Almost exactly. Um, we get a confrontation between Bella and Edward. Uh, she kind of walks up to the woods, Edward follows, and she finally just says, I know what you are, right? Yeah. Um, and this is one where, you know, some of the reviews mentioned, you know, sloppy directing, which I think is an unfair assessment. I don't think Hardwick is doing anything sloppily here. I think a lot of her choices are driven by budget, number one. Uh, and... Source material. The source material, yeah. I mean, a lot of it comes to that. But this is one scene where I think the actual camera work is is a little bit weird. Um, it's a big moment. It is possibly the biggest moment in the film, uh, this this scene. 
it's shot out in the woods. It's gorgeous. It's a beautiful location. Um, the lighting is is really good, even though they've color graded everything to sort of flatten it out. But we get these big swoopy camera movements as they're having this conversation, right? You know, which a lot of times in films, you know, these large circular camera movements around two characters having a confrontation, they're very common. You know, obviously we've already referenced Michael Bay. Michael Bay is extremely famous for his low sweeping camera movements <laughs> to, to show us the entirety of a scene that's going on. Um, but here it just feels very out of place and the shots do not feel stitched together cleanly. Um, a lot of times we're skipping movements, right? It's, it's not a clean, okay, we've got the swoop to the left side of them and we're going to convert to a, a swooping front shot. The camera does twist and bend, you know, kind of angles out in odd directions. It, it feels like a shot. I just wonder why there. I don't know. I don't know why that particular scene is filmed that way. It, almost, it, it seems like it was done by someone else. <laughs> right, yeah, it feels like a B-team kind of doing something different. I, I think the goal was to feel epic, right, momentous. And so you're doing these big swoopy camera motions. But if anything, I think the moment would actually be better served by shooting it fairly traditionally. You know, I'm, I'm not necessarily saying, you know, wide, medium, you know, coverage, but a little bit more traditionally to allow the actors to, to really, you know, sort of have their moment. Because some of the, like, big lines end up being 80 yard over yeah. these big swoopy camera motions. So it just it feels like an odd choice. Again, I I think it was a little bit of them trying to bat above their their budgetary weight, um, because really now is where the problematic stuff comes in, and it's mostly because of special effects budget. I'm gonna guess. Um, so the reveal is made. Edward tosses Bella on his back. We get an incredibly awkward sequence of them running up the mountain. Um, it's done in fast motion. He's zooming. It's obviously a dude on wires. It just does not look good. Um, but I, I, you know, it's probably the best that they could put together with the, the time and budget that they had. And, and honestly, I don't think Hardwick based on her work up until this point, I don't, I don't know about her, you know, where she might be now, but she doesn't have, I mean, none of her films really had a ton of, you know, what we would consider, uh, special or, or visual effects work in them. They're very, very, you know, straightforward you know, projects. And and here we get, you know, some fantastic supernatural stuff. And, and here's where the movie, I think, starts to, to stumble because it moves very cleanly away from strong teen drama into teen drama. Right? <laughs> and, and, and we, for me, it loses a bit of its luster. But again, it's the source material. You can't really do anything else. So um, they go up the hill, and Edward makes the, the big reveal that's the reason why they can never be seen in the sun. And, and this is most people's major beef with them being vampires, is that they... <laughs> what did they do they in the sun? Sparkle. They sparkle. They sparkle. So beautiful. Um, my favorite line in this, because it's terrible, <laughs> is, you're beautiful. This is the skin of a killer, Bella. <laughs> or whatever he says. And, and I just, that is so clunky. It's like, no, no, it is not the skin of a killer. It's, it's beautiful. It's gorgeous. Like, you, you would 
no one would ever feel uncomfortable apart from making it them different. So again, we can have a long discussion about that's not what a vampire is. The only issue that I have with how vampires are treated in this film, because eventually, very quickly, Bella is going to say, well, turn me into one of you. Make me a vampire, yeah. right? We're, we're 10 minutes away from her being like, all right, let's I'm do ready this. to be a vampire. Let's, you know, bite the neck. What do, what do we got to do, right? And one of my issues with that is that with many of these, these mythological monster type characters, right? The reason why they get to have immortality, the reason why they get to have flight or some other fantastic powers because they are forced to give up something else. Yeah. Something else essential, something else important to have that thing, right? So yes, I'm a vampire. I live forever, but I, I can never love again, right? Like all of these things. And the way that vampires are presented within Stephanie Meyer's universe, there is literally no downside no. to being. We should a all be vampires. It's right, awesome. because you know the the only threat, the only problem with being a vampire in the world of the Cullens is being able to control themselves around humans. That's it, right? And they seem and they to have seem been able to do, to do a that. fine job. Yeah, for a hundred plus years, they've been able to pull that off with aplomb. Um, so it it doesn't make a, a ton of sense that it, it well it makes sense why Bella wants to be one, and it doesn't make a ton of sense why Edward is so angry about being one, right? And and so there's that is is a, a beef that I can sort of legitimately say I understand yeah. because there should be a trade off something significant right but it's not really a problem right uh and once the the you know werewolf side of thing is introduced to the jacob side there's really no downside to being a werewolf either right they there's no downside to being a monster <laughs> yeah no being the monster is preferable right the only one i can think of for jacob is maybe just you go through a lot of jean shorts yeah you know just a, a just, lot of ripped shorts tearing through the jorts over at Jacob's house, right? Kind of always um, smell like a dog bed. <laughs> but so, like, I, I don't... That, I think, is, is understandable. Because when, when Edward is pushing back or being like, you don't understand, Bella, you don't know what it's like, it's like, well, it doesn't seem that bad. You know, all things considered. No, no. I would um, re-up Vampire every year. <laughs> yeah, every year, man. Just give me that year-long subscription. I to, like, uh, comment, vampire. and subscribe to Vampire. <laughs> Um, so then we very rapidly move through several sequences, uh, that we could just consider basically three to four minute exposition dumps as Edward explains how vampires work kind of, um, and then who he is, right. Which I think one of the cool revelations, uh, and I, we may have mentioned this in the last episode too, uh, Edward was dying of the Spanish flu, right. Uh, and in this pandemic riddled world that we are currently living in uh i think it's it's an a surprisingly it was a surprisingly effective touch point as that was brought to the fore that it was this worldwide pandemic that was causing him to die carlisle was indeed a doctor who made the decision to save his life by converting him into a vampire yeah. uh, he tells bella here about the process of change um, how there's some kind of toxin that's introduced to the human body when they're bitten and um the only way a vampire could be created is if a vampire has the strength, the will, if you will, to resist draining the body completely and allowing them to live. They have to be able to break off 
kind of thing. And so we get basically all of that information, which becomes very relevant at the end of the film in these next two sequences. But they're well acted. Pattinson finally gets to relax a bit yeah. uh, to just kind of be comfortable with Bella. And it's it's really effective, even though it's you know short. Um, and again, this the backdrop for this movie is great. Like I cannot... Hardwick, Hardwick is working so hard in this movie to make it look good, to, to really nail the performances. You know, I don't know about you, but I think she could, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have to work this hard to make this movie a semi-success. Like, I don't think you no. would have had to do a quarter or half of the things that she is doing in this movie to satisfy the fans of this franchise, but she's giving them way more right she is is giving them a very loving take on this source material handled well and that you know we've had a glut of ya adaptations since twilight as as it kicked off this craze and many of them would have benefited significantly from a director who cared about the source material enough to put this kind of craft into it yeah, even even just half as much <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I I look at uh, uh, movies like The Hunger Games. I mean, I know those did really well, but mm. I I just did not like any of those films, um, which is sad because I love Jennifer Lawrence. Sure. Uh, but those films, I I was hoping would have taken a little bit more from the first Twilight film, but instead it it tries to go the blockbuster route, yeah, and it misses out on fast. quiet moments. Yeah, this is a small film. It's a quiet movie, and I think it it absolutely suits the material very well. But in being that small film, it still feels really really well put together. Uh, then we get probably my favorite line in the film. Uh, they're getting ready to go for a, a visit, I guess, uh, with the Cullens. And Edward is packing up or, or messing around on Bella's truck. And he's doing, you know, sort of superhuman vampire things like jumping around and stuff. Not over the top. He's really just being kind of goofy. But Bella says, um, I think I put it in my notes. Uh, let's see. She says, act human, please. I've got neighbors. <laughs> which a seems like the most like midwestern thing ever for a human being to say it's like calm down steve i got neighbors um it's it just it it i i guffawed i was just like that's a, a great line you know if bella's just like okay dude calm down yes you're a vampire you can jump i get it just I have stop to, it please stop <laughs> cut it out uh, again it feels very real in terms of, of human relationships at this stage of life you know bella is not so enamored of Edward at this point that she still can't be uh, a little bit like, okay, yeah, calm down. Um, so then we get uh, the first scene with the, the entire Cullen family, right? Mm -hmm. we, who we've seen snippets of, but a lot of them haven't spoken yet. We haven't had any significant interactions with, but Edward invites Bella out to meet his family. Which again, it feels kind of like Hardwick interpreting the scene in the book and then layering a bit more, you know, sort of interesting complexity over it, right? It it feels like this odd inverse of Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, where because Bella is normal, she is the abnormal, right? It's it's the literal flip of, of how that typically works, right? 
you know, we don't get the scene of Edward coming to dinner with her dad. We have Bella going to the vampire family. And, uh, and it works well. They're, they're super nice. Again, anybody at this point in the film who might have suspected that the Cullens were dangerous murderers, if it's not dispelled by the se- these sequences, I, I don't know what could. Uh, they're they are kind. Uh, I guess Rosalie, played by Nikki Haley, who has uh, you know, a previous working relationship. She helped write 13 with Catherine Hardwick, uh, is, is disapproving mostly because she's afraid that the family will be exposed. And then we get sort of Edward again. We, they go to Edward's room. We find out he's a music lover because, of course, he is. Obviously, he's a brilliant piano player. He's been alive for 100 years. He can do yeah. anything he wants. He's cultivated some doubts. Right. And he listens to, to Debussy in his, in his room alone where he sleeps with the windows open. You know, it's just... Again, it's, it's 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 everything you want from your Byronic hero, right? Yeah. He's brilliant but accessible. He's talented but humble, right? Just it's, instead of a physical deformity, he's a vampire. That is the only thing that's been swapped out. Yeah, and and you know, again, there is no downside to his life. There is no no moment where anybody would go like, "Man, that must be rough, dude." Nope. Being a vampire must suck. It must really <laughs> suck. I gotta go hunt a deer every couple of days. That's okay. Fine. Otherwise, my eyes go to funny colors and stuff. <laughs> That's right. They turn red. <laughs> um. So uh, it, it's a really interesting scene. It's it's a bit of a montage played as as they kind of like you know prance around. They're up in the trees. Uh, some nice helicopter shots. I mean, honestly, they 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 work really well at sort of the scale, the grandeur of the Pacific Northwest. Um, but the the threat comes back, right? So we're reminded through another diner scene, um, again with Bella's male friends being absolute jackasses outside the <laughs> outside the restaurants, and and her dad encouraging her to go, you know, spend time with him, and she's like, no, I'm I'm really fine. I'm good. It's okay. <laughs> Um, and, and then we move into sort of the first, I mean, really the only, I guess we could call it romantic scene in the, the film, like an openly, we are moving towards physical relationship, right? Cause this is a very non-sexual film, right? Yeah. Like this is something that, you know, as, as a, a dad who has a daughter who's is reaching an age where she's going to start having these legitimate concerns, uh, I don't know if I would have too much objection to showing her this because it's very chaste. Um, you know, not and that probably I would really have Stephanie that big Meyer, issue with that. Stephanie Meyer is a Mormon. Um, uh, yes, that is that is true. And, she wrote and this, a very chaste love story. <laughs> yeah, this could very much be read like a Mormon uh, you know, courtship ritual, um, and. So they attempt to get to close uh, to get closer in this scene, and, and Edward, you know, restrains himself again. Again, he pushes her away, um, and and basically, what we we come to understand is that Bella is is like an intoxication for him. That uh, you know, her scent, her blood, whatever is is so difficult for him to control himself around her that he he may never be able to do it properly um i guess we should also mention vampire specializations um Edwards, they, they go to sense. they go to vampire trade school and they yep. they get they uh you know pick their specialization and go through an 18-month program 
and they come out, you know, ready, ready to be uh, part of the workforce. Join the vampire skills. workforce. Absolutely. So Edward's specialization is mind reading uh, or some kind of empath work. Counselor Troy from Star Trek. Yeah. Kind of thing. Um, but he can't read Bella for some reason. So he is both attracted to her, but he cannot use his powers to understand what she's thinking and feeling as he is accustomed to. Uh, we find out that his sister Alice is uh, capable of seeing the future, which becomes a very important plot point uh, in the, the next act uh, and future books, if I understand correctly. Yes. She, she, that power comes and goes as the plot demands uh, in future Stephanie and Meyer books. And it varies in, in strength and accuracy. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, but of course, this also sets up the the main villain of the last part of the film, which is James, who is a tracker, right? He has the uh, innate ability to to hunt any specific scent or human that he uh, attaches himself to. And once he has attached to a scent, he can't let it go until he uh, kills it and consumes it. Uh, so this vampire specialization idea is, is another modification of vampire lore, that there is some variability to their... Uh, powers and, and and what have you but it's it's a it's okay like it, it works all right but it definitely is it feels contrived right but it feels contrived from the source material again um and then we finally do get the dad meeting edward scene where he is legitimately and actually cleaning his shotgun <laughs> while edward cullen arrives uh, which you can feel, I mean, even though this is the Pacific Northwest, it, it feels like, a you know, as a, a you know, person who has spent the majority of their lives in the Midwest, uh, this feels like a very Midwestern dad kind of shot and, and, bit, made, yeah. and poking fun at it a bit. But I kind of don't like the sourness with which this scene is played. Um, there's the expected dad sourness of a boy who's interested in his daughter, get that, but it feels a little bit overblown here. Um, I think we're supposed to understand that uh, the sheriff is, you know, Charlie Swan is struggling with the death of his friend and this, this difficult investigation that he's trying to perform. So maybe it's some of the pressure from that layered on, but I thought there could have been a bit more joviality in this scene, uh, a bit more fun, uh, you know, the, the nudge, nudge, you know, Hey, take care of my daughter kind of thing, but it feels a bit over the top to me, a bit more, you know, uh, down than perhaps I would have expected at this point in the film, but that's that maybe just me. I don't know. What do you think? Um, it feels like kind of a throwaway scene. Like I, I think I said this before. I can't remember if it was in part one or um, what have you, but you can feel Charlie getting diminished and made more of a stock character by this point mm. in the film yeah. because they're they're slowly having to wind down that character's involvement because he's not really involved past the first film. I mean, he's there, but it's there's not a concern, not not as much meat to his character as there is in the first first film. Sure. Yeah, I, so I, I kind of took it as, as they're just moving him out of the way. Yeah, that makes sense. And and that definitely happens. You know, we've really got one more interstitial scene, and then he's basically out of the film after that. Um, and that scene, of course, is... If there is a scene that is is remembered 
from this first Twilight, it is the next scene, which is, of course, Vampire Baseball. Yes. Um, which, you know, has been memed to death. It has been made fun of relentlessly. Uh, watching it now, you know, divorced from it's you know, initial impressions. It's a harmless scene. It's kind of fun. Again, it's we could probably take issue with some of its technical approach. Uh, it's it's obviously shot very cheaply. There's a lot of um, you know camera sped up motion to try and imply speed. A little bit of the the blurry camera, you know, running effects, uh, things like that. It's it's this is another scene where it feels strained, and we've got a, a couple more of these coming, where you know their attempts to render the vampire powers on screen are. are lackluster but again i don't know if that's i don't think that's hardwick's fault um i think that is is very much just a a victim of the budgetary restraints and the the lack of confidence from the studio in this film because as i mentioned before they they slashed the budget right before production began right four million dollars which in a movie like this that's 10 percent of its budget that they had to excise in a couple of weeks, which is remarkably difficult. And most films yeah. that have that happen to them, the end result can either be, and it really is an either or, the slashing of that budget creates a tighter, stronger film because they really have to make hard choices about what gets in and what goes out, or it, it, it's disastrous. And this, this one is more on the side that it makes it disastrous. Yeah. Right? You know... Um, but they still hold it together, which I think is, is a lot to do with Hardwick's approach to, you know, a more natural and, and guerrilla style of filmmaking. They're still able to make it work. But this scene, I, you know, in the inevitable, you know, in 10 years or so when they reboot Twilight and, and it has that budget because they'll know that it will do fine. Uh, I think this scene could actually be a lot of fun and really interesting. Uh, but so they play vampire baseball. They have to play during thunder because that's the only way that the intense crack of the bat that sounds like thunder as they hit it uh, can't be perceived. Which, again, if they're hitting the ball that hard, the bat's just going to shatter. Like, you know, it's you're not gonna you're not gonna hit a but ball that hard. But then, what fun is that? Right. The, I, well, it might be fun to just see an entire rack of wooden baseball bats in the background. You just have to grab a new one every time you swing. I don't know. That would be funny. That that would have been. That would have been kind of interesting. Yeah. But so we get some fun little antics. Uh, it is established that Edward is the fastest of the Cullens, uh, which is important uh, coming up very soon. But vampire baseball is quickly interrupted by our traveling troop of bad vampire actors and they are introduced with a shot that i don't i don't know if you saw it or not i i was really trying to figure out how they did it in essence they they sort of walk out of the woods and there's this low shot uh looking up so that we can't get a scale reference and it looks to me like the actors are being pulled on a trailer and they are walking on treadmills Almost like they're, they're on those, uh, one of those stupid things that kids are always riding around. Oh, like a hoverboard. Yeah. Yeah. It feels it's, like they're just they're they're on they're on segways or something. <laughs> right. It's and I, I know what they're I know what it is. They're trying to show that they are walking quickly, striding right with this incredible speed and and grace, I guess. 
But um, it would have been better if they showed up on segways. It did, maybe. I mean, that would have at really least been cool really vampire. unexpected. <laughs> we don't know but where it, these guys are coming from. They're on segways. But it's it, it just doesn't really the shot doesn't really land. Um, and there are a couple of them and it's, it's sort of like, you know, in Scott Pilgrim, there's, you know, there are several scenes and this happens a bunch in movies, but Scott Pilgrim's the first example that came to mind. You know, Scott is moving across the room and he's kind of in a daze. And so it's just him being pulled on a cart, you know, and he's not walking, but he's moving. You know, like the Wayne's the world shot when he's moving through the crowd right. toward, towards, uh, towards Cassandra. Yeah. So exactly. And, but here they're trying to, they're in motion. So they're, they're walking at normal human speed, but then being pulled across the land much, much faster. And it just feels strange, right? It has Everything a very, with the bad vampires is just, ugh. Yeah. But, and that's, again, I, I feel like those moments just take away from an otherwise pretty compelling character drama about these two strange people falling in love. And I was a little more interested in maintaining the whole, you know, who are the Collins, what is the mystery, what's going on. And I feel like I'm, I was satisfied when we got those answers, and I wonder if, if that maybe wouldn't have been more successful. But again, the, the vamp, they were in the book, so... You have to put it in yeah, there. You have and, to address that. And, uh, you know, the uh, Victoria is, is is the primary antagonist of the next, really, the next two books. So, um, you know, they, they have to have her in here. But just the way that they are inserted into this story, it feels like an afterthought, even though it obviously wasn't, right? They were never, you know, they were a part of this from the beginning. Um but so the the bad vampires show up. Edward tries to protect Bella. We get uh, the vampire hissing and presenting. Right, they're all kind of like <laughs> and, and you know sort of a, attacking each other in this very animalistic way. That looks a little bit silly, cool. but it it's it's fine. You know, it, it's not the first time I've it's, seen vampires hiss at each other. It's and it recontextualizing kind of vampires. You know, it's right. it's changing that for a, a different audience and you know at a certain point i just have to let go of the fact that i don't like it <laughs> right it's just it's it's okay you know you just kind of have to to run with what the world is presenting um and again vampires sort of you know hissing and attacking each other has been a, a thing for a long time and the movie just kind of this is its take on it but here's where you know we get the first instance of edward trying desperately to bring Bella into his world. And now like there has been significant consequence because now that James has gotten her scent, he's going to track her and there's, there's no escape. Um, but I really like that Bella doesn't just collapse here. She doesn't say, Oh, what are we going to do? She really does kind of say, all right, well, what do we need to do? Let's do it. And, and I, I just, I, again, I like how Bella's handled in this sequence. She doesn't collapse. She doesn't fade. You know, she she pushes back in ways that make sense for a, a, a character that has become more confident. You know, there's yeah. still some missteps, but I, I think it mostly works. But so this really drives us into the end of the film. Uh, basically, Bella is forced to go on the run. We have a, another scene that I, I, you know, found tonally difficult as she just reams her father 
for his uh, misdeeds and and she's doing it for his own good i want to keep him safe so they have to know that i'm not here anymore so he he won't get killed but it just it's it's a it's a hard watch as she sort of tears him down as seemingly apropos of nothing you know that you really do get the feeling like but we had cereal together this morning what's the problem you know and and it it really does it is rough and and from that moment on like i again i think you're kind of on uh, on the nose if they were really seeding the rest of the series, which obviously they needed to consider. This is is sort of the breaking point where Charlie Swan is no longer an active decision maker in Bella Swan's life, if he ever was, and and you know now she is firmly in this other universe. Uh, so they run, uh, they attempt to fool James the Tracker by taking some of Bella's stuff and plant a scent in the opposite direction, but we we wind up taking Bella back home to Arizona, right to. Uh, the, the land of sun again uh, she goes sucks. home <laughs> yeah and it's it's it, it is it's really played down that uh you know forks is this idealized place that despite its problems is gorgeous and, and welcoming and arizona is just terrible um, it's a thousand get, degrees yeah. everyone gets it and uh so we're driven to the end fairly quickly alice has a vision again carefully placed interesting plot device and Bella is drawn away from the vampires who are trying to keep her safe, the Cullens who have come with her, and uh, she goes to her old ballet studio. She's tricked by James using an old family movie to uh, have her mother's voice sound like she's in trouble. And so Bella goes alone to uh, have a confrontation, which I don't really know what she was going to do. Because, uh, again, there's no downsides to vampirism in this universe. Yeah. So there's no garlic that can be thrown around the neck. There are no crosses that can be displayed to defend herself. So Bella goes to rescue her mother with no plan yeah. <laughs> in place to protect her from this uh, this vampire who has obviously been presented as an incredibly dangerous threat. Uh, so she shows up... Uh, all of the violence in the film has been saved for this sequence. Uh, Bella's leg is shattered, broken by James. Uh, it is a very visceral break. That um, one hurt. That hurt a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's it's cringy, right? I mean, bone breaks in movies generally are. You know, a lot of it has to do with the sound effect presentation. But this one it was actually shot in a way that was was visually disturbing as well as as you know auditorially disturbing yeah. and uh we get our, our final confrontation and so uh, the vampire fight uh, edward shows up because he's the fastest of the cullens do you remember oh, that from the scene earlier uh edward shows up before everybody else because uh even though two of the vampires are just in arizona like around the corner uh edward gets there first and and he gets into a confrontation with james james bites bella uh, infects her with the toxin. Remember that from earlier as well. Um, and then uh, he fights Edward. And we get a couple of cool shots here, but the again, the budget feels very obvious here. Uh, it's a lot of wire work. It's shot almost entirely in shadow so that they don't have to do any face replacement on the, Which on the stunt actors. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, generally at this point, in 2008, face replacement was not great. Uh, to begin with but they they shoot it dark it's in a ballet studio so it's a nice open space there is a nice shot of uh edward sort of slamming 
the vampire into the the wooden uh, studio floor yeah. and it just kind of shatters up and that i think is actually pretty effective that would have been difficult to execute and it looks pretty good but there's also just a lot of people getting thrown into poles and and you know the window gets broken and all this different stuff um but, but it's you know there's this there's a sense of danger to it though you know it's I, I can't thankfully say short i yes. loved that this did not fixate on an action-packed fight scene Whereas right. so many of these young adult franchises feel like they have to Marvel movie it up. And this just did not do that. No, it's a very, it's, it's a very um, quiet moment, right? This is not the fate of the world. This is quite literally the fate of these two people's relationship. And that scale feels appropriate, right? Um, you know, uh, we talked a little bit about uh, like Suicide Squad, you know, like I'm, I'm so tired of large scale movies where there's a blue light in the sky and the world is in danger and only these you know happy few can stop it. Uh, sometimes that works, right? Like I think uh, the Doctor Strange Marvel movie did a good job of having a world ending threat that was dealt with and dispensed with in an awesome way but that's rare you know so many of these things it just it's it, the scale doesn't feel appropriate i want something smaller where the the stakes are more intimate and, and that's what i, I do as here. well i do as well um and that's that was originally what softened me toward the film is i i kind of just expected an action-packed shit show and instead it was this very small and very thoughtful picture and that's that was surprising mm -hmm. yeah i mean it, it wouldn't have had to be but i think again in this case restraint helped the film sort of remain consistent and and, in, and work well internally um so edward is is confronted with his his ultimate choice again the only downside to being a vampire that we're presented with in the film is that edward has to control himself yeah. right that's the the danger right <laughs> and it's like sex you have to control yourself right and not um, do a sex and don't do the sex things and um and so he's forced to confront that here because to save bella he has to drink her blood to purify her of the toxin how this happens unexplained why it happens doesn't matter yeah. but ultimately he bites her cleans the blood with his mouth hole i don't know <laughs> I clean your blood with my <laughs> <laughs> but then is but then has to to stop himself from uh you know draining her or or what have you but he basically stops her from becoming a vampire that's what's happening she is is converting uh based on the previous bite and he stops it he prevents that from happening which bella um actually ends up sort of not liking right she's like why didn't you just let me turn to a vampire well, i would no be kind of pissed too because the I want to be a vampire now. Being a vampire yeah, is apparently awesome. It's amazing. It's the best time ever. Uh, but Edward doesn't want to see that happen to her because obviously he's tortured about being this super being who can sprint from Forks to Arizona in moments uh, and and tear another vampire limb from limb, which is the, the way that that scene ends with them ripping James apart and burning him, which apparently is the only way to uh, ensure that he won't back i guess uh again <laughs> never really explained why they need to do that to him it's pretty savage it's, it's yeah it's quite 
It's a savage scene. It's a little bit Lord of the Flies, right? Because it's like the burning fire and then like the people dancing around it, ripping the body apart. Uh, it's, again, all of the violence that you might expect in a vampire film is saved for this, you know, three and a half minute chunk. And, uh, and it works. You know, it's not bad. Like I said, the special effects are... Uh, but as, as a small, intimate fight scene to cap your movie off, it's, it's not bad. Uh, so then um, Bella goes into recovery. The cover story for her is that she tripped down two flights of stairs and fell out a window. <laughs> and that is why her, her leg is broken and she looks like she's uh, been cut to pieces. Um, by things that definitely aren't bite marks and everyone just buys it which i think is great nobody questions it for a moment they're just like oh honey you're You're such a dumbass you're (laughs) such a klutz and 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 that's it so we get a a little scene where bella asks why didn't you just let me turn edward says i would never do that And, and we we kind of rush to the end and and like most teen films right much like a a good romantic comedy is going to end with a a wedding or a party or an anniversary or whatever um your teen drama is going to end with a dance yeah that's how it has to happen stranger things season two man we got to go to the winter ball what else we're going to do with our time so we end with the dance they go to prom um bella looks beautiful she has a boot on because leg broken clumsy girl and uh everything kind of gets wrapped up. She gets one more brief scene with Jacob where he says that we're watching, right? Which is creepy, but sort of unexplained. Um, obviously setting up seeds for the next film. Um, Bella and Edward, you know, have a nice moment together. They, they've agreed to move forward and everything wraps up. And then we get a nice little stinger right at the end of, uh, James's mate, uh, Victoria, observing from a high window and and setting her up as the antagonist of the next film and several films um and that's it right twilight is over right uh, it is a a small relatively quiet picture that uh, actually does a pretty good job of executing what it sets out to do which is is refreshing for a film of this type at this point extremely uh, and i'm right, surprised so that, this, that it's twilight i'm surprised that i that I, I am so soft on the film. Because um, I really oh, expected uh, to hate it. I expected to just loathe it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I had very little interaction with this movie uh, up until our, our rewatch for this. I'd watched the riff tracks of it, as I mentioned before. Um, you know, and I'd seen you know bits and pieces of all the other films, uh, usually in a joking manner. But I, I was okay with that. You know, this is not a movie for me. This is not a movie that's that's geared to... Uh, to me and, and I'm fine with that um, so I, I never really felt the need to engage with it but I'm kind of glad that I did because I, I found a lot to like right there's quite a bit within this movie to appreciate right it has its low moments absolutely right all the bad vampire stuff is ugh. Um, but the the core relationship between Edward and Bella is really strong and very well acted um, and, and honestly, I think that's because they knew that that's what people were coming to see at the end of the day. Like that's what they wanted. Um, and I think that Hardwick uh, gave it to them. So I guess, um, you know, we, we've hit a lot of the different elements of the film. I, I guess we could spend a bit of time on the music. 
um, which uh, I was surprised by the quality of the music. I mean, the credits ends with uh, a Tom York song, which I I'm never, I was I'm sold. never going to be displeased about that. Um, um, we didn't... the soundtrack was probably the thing that I liked. I liked the most when I saw the film initially, um, because it's uh, by Carter Burwell who is frequent collaborator with the Coen brothers. Um, mm -hmm. Again, more, more Coen brothers. Um, and I've been a huge fan of, of just his soundtracks and his sensibilities when it comes to um, using music in film. And I think he's one of the few, um, few composers where I've, I've purchased soundtracks that um, he's worked on because they're worth listening to as albums, which typically I can't say of soundtracks. Um, yeah. I love the music. Yeah, I mean, apart from just the pop song Needle Drops, which I think are carefully chosen and surprisingly well integrated into the scenes, there's a Muse track in there as well that's that's used very nicely. Um, it... it is a soundtrack that feels alive within the film. It's not just your requisite, we need, you know, five songs to play throughout the 90 minute runtime so that we can have, you know, an album release and we can supplement it with, you know, songs inspired by Twilight or whatever. It, it very, it feels very carefully chosen. Like there were significant discussions about what does this feel like? How can we find music that's going to fit into this? Um, you know, the, again, I go back to the, the, reviewers who said that this film was too serious i again i feel like that seriousness was by design right it's it's there because they want it to be there and the musical choices support that seriousness because they're handled not in the way that we would traditionally see them handled in a teen movie yeah um you know and and i'll, I'll use an example that i actually really love because i love the soundtrack to this as well but 10 things i hate about you has a fantastic soundtrack, but some of the ways that those soundtrack songs are introduced in the film itself are, are very tonally dissonant for me. Like a, a song will start and I'll be like, why? Why <laughs> did you start that song now? I like the song. It's a good song, but I didn't need that song in this moment. But I didn't do that with any of the songs that were used in Twilight. None of yeah. them. Uh, every time a song came out, I was like, that's a great choice. It works for the scene. Um, and that's that's Carter Burwell, and it's what the man yeah. does uh, with his soundtracks. But it, it felt especially useful here, and it I never got those like breaks in tone and breaks in in the dramatic weight of a scene because I'm playing a popular song that I often get when I'm watching a movie like this. Yeah, and that in and of itself is great. Um, you know, so I, I think you know as we're kind of winding down the discussion. Uh, I, I feel very comfortable in saying I think Catherine Hardwick does not get the credit that she deserves absolutely. for not only kicking off this $3 billion franchise, which she absolutely did. I do not think in the hands of, of someone else who did play to the camp, who did play to the ridiculousness of this, this idea that Stephanie Meyer had. I, I don't know if this would have gone to the same levels because as the series gets more and more embedded within its own mythology and gets more 
out there, you know, the Volturi, Michael Sheen, right? All of that stuff coming in. If you didn't have this strong, simple anchor uniting the characters leading into that, I really don't know if it would have been able to go anywhere. And so now we've had this huge explosion of YA. And frankly, she remains the only, yeah, I think the only female director out of that spate of films, right? If you look at Hunger Games, you look at Divergent, um, which, ugh, whatever. Uh, you really shouldn't look at Divergent. Yeah, don't look at Divergent. I mean, I like Shailene Woody a lot, or Woodley a lot. She, she's fine, but the, the story of Divergent is just copy-paste Hunger Games. Um, but anyway, all of those franchises, you know, nobody else looked, you know, why is the first Hunger Games, why was it not directed? I mean, it's a female-led film with an incredible lead actress, who was incredible at the time, right? It's not like Kristen Stewart, who was basically an unknown. Oh, that girl that was in uh, Into the Wild for five minutes? Oh, cool. You know, yeah, let her leave your vampire Court. movie. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> Jodie Foster's daughter from Panic Room. Oh, she's my first choice. Um, you know, Jennifer Lawrence was a bona fide star when she took Hunger Games, or at least, you know, on that trajectory. And, you know... What might a film like that have been like with someone as capably uh, as capable in the director's chair at telling the uh, a really solid story? I, I don't know. It it begs the question, um, yeah. and then it also begs the question of other contemporaries of Hardwick, Patty Jenkins. Um, you know, Patty Jenkins did Monster. She won an Oscar. Yeah. And then she did nothing for fourteen years. Well, you right. win she the did, Oscar, did, you don't have to do anything anymore. Oh, yeah, I mean, obviously. She did a lot of TV, but she didn't do anything else in Hollywood, right? So it's like, and then when she did, the movie made a billion dollars, right? So uh, I just, I really feel like Hardwick, who's had missteps, right? Like uh, her next film, uh, Red Riding Hood with Amanda Seyfried, was not good and, and did not do well. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I, I just, I wonder you know, what other properties she might be really ideal for and what other films and, and, and projects, you know, was she passed over for, not even offered. Um, but I, I really think we would not have this glut of YA, like, because YA is a huge feeding ground for the film industry right now, like, massive. Like, it, you know, I, I'm pretty embedded in writer Twitter, if you want to call it that. And, you know, I mean, it is completely common as part of a publishing package deal for a YA novel now that you sell the film rights when you sell the book. Mm -hmm. Like it's just expected because somebody out there is going to want to make it or at least consider making it. And so like, I don't think that would exist without this film. And I don't think that those opportunities would exist for other people to have their stories told without this film and Catherine Hardwick and how she approached it, the realism, the care, the concern, the consideration for the property that could have been a joke. I don't think you build a billion dollar franchise out of that without what she did. I agree. Um, I guess let's go ahead and move into the, the one thing, right? So the, the thing that we think might have improved this film, which again, this is a, a sort of, you know, middle of the road one for us. Cause it was not a, a, a failure, right? It was a huge success, right? They made 10 times their money back, but it, it is not well looked upon now 
right? People don't look back on this film generally and say, oh man, what a great movie. Uh, what a fantastic piece of entertainment. It has its fans and it has its apologists as the, the Rotten Tomatoes score of you know, 75-ish percent would indicate. But looking back now, it's in my research, it's more mocked than it is admired. Yes. Um, and I think the, the later films have a lot to do with that because they are increasingly not good. Um, but in general, the response to this film from the world at large was, you know. And that is, that's right. really sad. I think people missed yeah. out on enjoying this film for what it was. Yeah, and I, I really like that, you know, a lot of our discussion has been about how, you know, many groups sort of reject the concerns of, of teenage girls, yeah. right? That uh, the market of a teenage girl, what appeals to them, what they want to see, the ideas that they want to interact with, or that they don't have value. I think this film bucks that uh, pretty hard, and and rightly so. And I'm really glad that there is media out there that does sort of directly appeal to that group and I, I think we need more of it right i agree um you know we've talked a lot about you know the the please everybody movies the marvel movies where there's something for everybody hey ladies that scene at the end of, of avengers endgame where all the ladies are fighting thanos we gave that to you right and it feels very it feels very manipulative and very manufactured yeah excuse right? like, this movie because we have done this for you and that's that's right. unfair you know, you don't. We shouldn't excuse lazy filmmaking because they they do the bare minimum to pander to a group of people. Um, and this film has missteps in it, but it does not pander to anyone. I don't even think it, it panders like to fans of the book because it still makes some pretty stark choices about how it's going to portray um, the events of the book and how it's going to set up these characters in this universe. Um, I I think I just think it's very sad the treatment of this game and the treatment of of teenage girls in general. Um, we should stop hating on them so much. <laughs> yeah, they become I, women I think, eventually. <laughs> I, I think it's the unfortunate nature of just forgetting how traumatic that time can be in life, and how these. And I'm guilty of this too, 100%. But how these things that, looking back through the spans of time, seem very small and unimportant, right? A, a glance from a boy you like in the lunchroom. Um, a, you know, brushing the shoulder of somebody that you have a crush on, right? Like these moments that we look back on as we, as we grow into adulthood and we say, God, that was so stupid. Ugh, what a waste of time. But they're big when they happen. Exactly. In the moment, at that time, they're everything. And, you know, if anything, watching this movie again, it reminded me of that, right? You know, it reminded me of, you know, the first time that I met my wife, which happened when I was about this age. Um, and and the, the slow dance as you sort of worked around each other and figured each other out and you know what's really going on here and i was especially stupid about it i mean i was 
I mean, I had no idea what was happening around me at the time. I had zero understanding, but like it, it refreshed me on that. And I think that that speaks to just how well Hardwick was able to translate her ability to capture youth experience in, in her previous projects and bring that into this and anchor it in that. Because without that anchor, if it had you know, gone into the gloss, gone into the ridiculousness from the get-go without really building these characters and letting them interact in realistic ways, I think this movie would be a travesty. I, um, I, I think it would be a disaster of the highest order. It still borders on one, but I don't think that that has anything to do with the approach. I think it has to do with, you know, what will, I guess I'll, I'll lead into my one thing, uh, which is budget. Like, this movie just needed more money. Because yeah. where it falters is where the supernatural elements are attempted to be rendered on screen. That's where the movie really stumbles. Like, it just doesn't have the ability to give it the grandeur and the scope that it's trying to. And I guess my, my one thing would have been, if you didn't have the budget to pull it off, then you shouldn't have tried. That would be my only note, if you want to call it that. Just let those moments be small, put them up in a tree, take some helicopter shots, call it call it a day right and that kind of that plays into you know my one thing which would be similar but a little bit different um but i i agree that you know if if it's not going to be done well just find a way not to do it <laughs> mm -hmm. um but I don't, I don't know if you're ready for me to oh yeah my no, one totally. thing yeah. um Mine would be, you know, if you kept the budget the same, um, remove the, remove or at least greatly de-emphasize and, and maybe even rewrite the antagonists, um, the bad vampires. It felt so tacked on that the, ta the space that it did take up in the film, I wish it had either been greater component, which if they had more budget, it probably would have been, and they probably would have been able to spend more time, you know, building up these villains. But as it stands, it probably would have been better to just remove that. Yeah, it all happened so quickly, like his obsession with Bella. Um, Hardwick talked in, in a recent interview that, you know, when they had to make those cuts, there were several large-scale sequences that immediately went to try and eat that budgetary, you know, eat that budget away. Yeah. And I imagine a lot of those were either additional confrontations with the bad vampires, more sequences with them. Because uh, when they meet the Cullens on the field, the movie immediately shifts into high gear, like, oh, we're screwed. And it feels like there might have been some more stuff in between that before that happened, but I, I really don't know. And I don't have enough experience with the book to say, but but yeah, I, I think uh, I'm, I could definitely get on board with that. I, most of the bad vampire stuff in this movie just does not land. Um, and by the time they show up, it doesn't make sense why they're such a threat immediately, right? Yeah. Um, and the way that, honestly, the way they dispense with James at the ballet studio, why didn't you just attack him right there in the field and kill him? Yeah, just like, get rid of it. Like, just, just end it, you know? Because they could tell um, he was he was a threat. They could tell he was bad news. It, I mean, it felt like the Cullens already knew this is our problem. 
Right. And they and, and didn't so stop it. <laughs> just, you know, hunt him down right there if you're that fast. So again, yeah, there just feel like some odd choices to, to build drama and tension with those characters that doesn't necessarily go anywhere. Um, and, it, and it's so not the point of the movie at all. Yeah. Like it's just, it's not the point um, that I probably would have been okay with just leaving it at that small scale. You know, the, the drama here and the climax of the movie is how are Edward and Bella going to, to find a way to be together despite these, these problems. Um, all right. So um, I guess let's uh, share our failure piece scores um, sort of on our scale of zero to 100, 100 being so amazing, so bad that it's actually incredible. Uh, where would you place Twilight? I would give it a solid 76. I, I think it's it's an average Surely film. Average. Yeah. Um, I, I give it a little bit of a boost because I think it does have some interesting visuals. I think it's, um, of all of the sort of teen drama films, I, I would prefer... Um, to watch something like this as opposed to the swath of really bad Netflix movies um, that are mm-hmm. geared toward teenagers. Like The Kissing Booth. They're making a third one of those. Yeah, I saw that today. I was like, okay, wow. sure. Like, yeah. How did you even make a first one? Um, <laughs> but those are... there's a ravenous group of people who want content aimed at them and they're willing to take whatever they can They're get willing to watch absolute garbage. Yeah. And this film defies that to me and that i can forgive a lot of its mistakes in that it does something different for an audience that is usually sidelined and i know that they're sidelined because i've been that audience um there are not a lot of movies that are successful and realistic and geared toward a teenage female audience and this definitely does. I mean, yeah. and it does well. You know, it's it's a very watchable flick. Um, so I'm definitely right in that same ballpark. I, I would put this at a solid seventy for me. Uh, it's it's again a little bit on the the low side of average. I mean, this is not going to rise to my list of favorite films. It's not one that I'm going to watch over and over again. But I, whereas before I might have avoided it like the plague, this is a definitely a film that I can see. You know, introducing. Uh, my daughter too at some point and and discussing with her and 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 sharing with her and and actually enjoying that rather than it being a oh she brought twilight home from the library oh god you know like i really don't i I just don't have that opinion of it anymore whereas i you know 12 years ago i kind of did so you know i i I feel like it's it's a it's a much stronger film than it needed to be to kick off this series you know they could have treated it much more lazily. We've certainly seen, you know, semi-successful YA franchises kicked off with way less successful films yeah. in the intervening time frame. Uh, you know, films that just do not have this level of, of craft. Not so much in the, the filmmaking itself, because I, I will agree that Hardwick's filmmaking in this movie is spotty at times, but the core emotional relationships between the, the central characters is so well executed and at the end of the day, that's what you're going to remember, yeah. right? That's what you're going to take away from a movie like this, not how goofy the vampire fight at the end might have looked or, you know, how silly vampire baseball is. Exactly. It's it's the strong emotional resonance, especially the audience that this is designed to communicate with. 
that's what you're going to take away from it. And it, it executes well. And, and I'm very happy that, you know, case do and our Pat were able to, <laughs> to, to emerge from this and, and turn into actors that I, I have a great deal of respect for now. All right. Uh, so I think that's pretty solid recommendations from both of us. Uh, yeah. I think if you have never engaged with twilight or if you have stayed away, uh, because of the furor surrounding it, um, not a bad idea to at Engage. least give this one, give this one a shot. Now, maybe not the franchise entire, because it does get pretty far out there. But this yeah. one stands as a fairly decent YA romantic drama with a bit of a thriller element and some supernatural stuff dashed onto the top. It really and, does. Uh, and it's it's surprisingly effective. And I, I put most of that on Hardwick's shoulders. She just executes the things that really matter really well in this case. I agree. All right. Uh, so where can you be found on social media? Um, I can be found on Twitter at Baskinator and Instagram at the Baskinator. Um, I also have my own website now at CatherineBaskin.com. Um, so you can check me out there if you want to. Uh, yeah, that's me. How about you? Awesome. Uh, you can find me at Twitter as well. I am at T Baskin. I got in early. Um, mm -hmm. You can also find, uh, I also have a website, timothybaskin.com or bskn.org. It goes to the same place, um, which I've never mentioned that before, but I do have that. I don't spend a lot of time on it, unfortunately. Yours looks better than mine. Uh, <laughs> but uh, you can also get us as a group at uh, FPS Theater on Twitter, or if you want to send us any inquiries or any questions, you can send that to failurepiece at gmail.com. Um, all right. Well, thanks for engaging with us in this uh, two-part, uh, somewhat disastrous recording of Twilight <laughs> that we have corrected and, and gotten out there to you guys. So hopefully you enjoyed part two if you were able to, to make it through part one. Uh, again, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.